No, I didn't actually attempt. Um, I haven't gotten to that point, I guess. The courage, the strength that it takes to be open and honest about this. Instead of just, you know, blaming myself that he's not here anymore. Uh, I was prepared to shoot myself. Um, and I called my family to sort of say goodbye. To be honest, I was scared reaching out for help because I was like, this could totally ruin my career. Somebody to have a more proactive approach and that he was coming to me to be that person. They found him and he committed suicide. I just started screaming. I just felt responsible. Hello everyone, I am Tim Lawson, host and founder of the One Too Many Veteran Suicide project and podcast it is monday i have a story for you today mr andy weiss is coming on board to talk to us about his son danny who was a soldier in the army uh, also a ranger uh, and unfortunately a victim uh, to suicide really appreciate andy's willingness to come forward and and talk to us about his son and uh, you know, let us know what he was going through and what we can learn from it. My my talk with Andy uh, was a really great one, and uh, there just wasn't. We had a nice long conversation, and there really wasn't much I wanted to take out of the conversation uh, for the sake of this episode. We even talked about different resources and things that uh, survivors can do to help mend uh, in, in the recovery of a, of a suicide. So I'm actually going to skip the post-interview uh, reflections and notes and such because uh, a lot of it is already encompassed in this podcast or in the interview. So um, I'm just going to uh, we're just going to go right into my talk with Andy, and I will see you on Wednesday for my mo- momentary reflections. Well, the the best place to start, of course, is to introduce my son, Danny Weiss. My yeah. son uh, was, uh, uh, he and uh, his older brother, AJ, and my wife and I uh, grew up in California, um, they uh, were forced to move in a corporate move with me uh, to Chicagoland. And uh, Danny was starting uh, second grade. So uh, in the rearview mirror, that had to be a bit of a traumatic thing. Um, came here and uh, everybody flourished. I mean, uh, it's a beautiful area. He went to, uh, the, you know, this public school systems here. And, uh, and 9-11 happened when he was 15. Um, he uh, internalized it like everybody did in a different way. And people respond and react to disasters in a different way. And there was that incredible sense of uh, disbelief and such. But Danny, because of his character, who he was becoming, took a real deep, profound uh, uh, positions uh, that uh, changed the trajectory of his life. By that, I mean, he, uh, he was uh, probably bullied at some point in his life. Uh, because he became very protective of other people uh, in those situations. And he always gravitated towards the fringe of folks, uh, the, the nerd type or the fellow who was uh, had a handicap and was not, uh, you know, the jock idol and such like this. And he would put himself in between those people and the potential bullies. And he, he, he hated bullies. He just hated bullies. And uh, 
he took that uh, really personally when the towers came down and when the Pentagon was attacked and uh, and uh, he announced us a few months it turns out later uh, probably when he was 16 that he intended to join the army and he went and you know went to the local recruiter um, started working out and taking care of his physical health you know I was uh, I, by the way, I'm not a veteran. Uh, my father served, my son served, uh, but I was a lottery child in Vietnam, so I had a real distorted view of the military, if you will, that was uh, filtered through the Vietnam War, um, part of the uh, the political nonsense, where my son didn't have that at all. Well, he had a uh, completely different view of what it was about. And so when he presented himself at the recruiter and told me and his, his mom that he was going to join the Army, um, and by the way, he did look at the Marines as well. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and uh, he, um, we, 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 we asked him, you know, what, why? I mean, there. And he basically, uh, without saying the words, said, "I want to save the world." And um, so we tried to reason with him that there are other ways. Uh, you know, you could join the Peace Corps, for example. You could, uh, you know, do service in so many different ways. And he was insistent. And uh, Using some reference uh, that uh, sometimes now I don't know if it's true or not or it's just the filter of time, but I vaguely remember him telling me, Dad, if I join the Peace Corps and terrorists come to attack the people I'm helping, what am I going to do? So, uh, you know, he, he he went to the Army, and he was 17. He accelerated his high school experience. He hated high school. He hated the the pseudo-ness of it, I guess. Uh, in, in He didn't like the... The priorities of his his fellow students and such, um, and he joined the army. He graduated December, and in uh, February was off to Fort Benning for infantry training. He, he, directly to infantry, he he had no he wanted to be tip of the spear right out, and so off he went to uh, infantry basic. We uh, were very nervous um, because uh, we thought that uh, first of all that it was a bad decision as a time of war filtered through my my ignorance, okay, about what motivates human beings. Um, and we went down for his graduation, and he had become soldier of the cycle. And uh, he was uh, already fully embracing uh, the military culture and uh, the concept of Army Corps values of loyalty, duty, respect. He really, he really could feel them. They resonated with him, and I could see the change in him. And I, I started just really pumping up with pride, i got to tell you. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, they put on quite a show, the Army, you know, uh, they show all sorts of, uh, you know, vehicles popping around, and they put the the show on for the parents and the, and the guests and all this, but uh, they missed an opportunity in the rearview mirror to pull the families together and say, you know, we, uh, we break them down to build them up, but uh, you all should be prepared for what comes back to you. That, sure. that conversation didn't start. And, uh, okay, so we, we went down... Uh, and watched him become this uh, new person, this uh, incredible person. And uh, because he was named Soldier of the Cycle, he went off uh, with the plum assignment to the 173rd in Vicenza, Italy. And uh, now I'm recognizing my son because my background is in international trade. So he's always had, uh, we've always had visitors to our family from all over the world. And my son... Uh, we had taken him a couple times uh, overseas and, 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 and such like this. And so now he was based in Vicenza, and it made perfect sense to me. And we visited him before his first deployment to Afghanistan. He had turned 18 there in Vicenza. And uh, 
he was still our son, you know. He was still looking and acting and being the fellow that I knew. And uh, off he went. And uh, we were very lucky because he's always been a very uh, reflective person. And uh, it expressed itself in different forms. Uh, one point he painted for a period, and we were lucky recipients of, of his efforts. And he kept journals. So as he went off to Afghanistan, I've inherited since his death uh, his journals. And uh, the descriptions of what he experienced uh, are phenomenal. And the transformation of his tone is phenomenal. Hmm. And he went through his first deployment. And like so many uh, of our military experience, stuff that we of the 99% cannot imagine. Right. And, uh, and I couldn't quite get my head around it. Um, we were plenty worried. I remember... This is well in advance of the instant communications, okay? I mean, early on, you may remember, uh, there was, you know, OPSEC, avoid all conversations. Yeah. And uh, there was no real chat rooms and such, but there was a message board that we had from the 173rd, and it was very spotty and really ridiculous communications, and no communication from uh, the command structure of the military. So... A helicopter went down in the area that Danny was. We were worried for 48 hours until you see the names. And then you're worried that some other disaster is going to happen. You know, we go through all the things that any family, any Blue Star family goes through. Right. And we never really thought about any of the other aspects, which I've come to learn about in the past. That, for example, on a mission as they go uh, from KAF, uh, Kandahar Air Force Base, up towards the Argandav, uh, uh a, a dear friend of his, a fellow brother in arms, was uh, in an IED and, and, and bled out. And I, I, I know now the type of pain that my son must have felt because I, I didn't until I had shared in that type of loss. Yeah. And uh, then subsequently uh, he, he, he re finished his tour um, and announced he's, he's coming home. And uh, he wasn't stopped lost, and he applied to university while he was in Afghanistan with his mom's help. And he came back and went and enrolled in the University of Illinois, Chicago. And we thought, uh, my wife and I, oh, great, we're home free. Um, he's, he's back to us full, all limbs, everything is good. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was delusional. I mean, it is incredible how ignorant we are. Um, and, of course, uh, I, I talked to him, you know, and, and, and could see that he had been transformed. And uh, he expressed himself uh, uh, in more clip form. Um, we enjoyed each other's company. And uh, I, I remember going down and, and going to lunch. Uh, we'd go out to eat some great seafood and such because he took care of his body like I can't describe. And, uh, for example, no drinking, no, uh, no smoking, none of that stuff. I mean, it was strictly the equation of my body is my machine for me to save the world. Yeah. And... Uh, so uh, he didn't mention to me that the reason he got out of the Army and went to the university was that he wanted to go back in the Army as an officer. <laughs> that little detail escaped him in the description because he figured it was a need-to-know basis, I guess, and uh, also probably wanted to protect us from, uh, from uh, the, 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 the fear that he, he knew that we had. Yeah. And uh, so he finished his four-year college uh, career in two years <laughs> and uh, blazed through, got his degree, uh, and, and, and immediately present himself at OCS down there at Fort Benning again, and uh, with the trajectory of going to uh, get Ranger tabbed, um, and he did, 
And he, uh, I, I was just looking at pictures, uh, the other day, uh, of a proud papa watching his mom pin the ranger tab on his shoulder. I mean, uh, I gotta tell you, I'm bursting with pride right now thinking of how awesome it is. And, uh, absolutely. He, he went back in, got ranger tab. Um, I was extremely and am extremely proud. There's no two ways of that. And, uh, then he went off for a second deployment with the 117 of, uh, the, uh, Fifth Striker Brigade up there based in Fort Lewis. So he was uh, replacing a uh, platoon leader who had gotten blown up. And uh, that particular 117 infantry experience was the the single most casualties of any uh, unit deployed, I think, up to that time. Oh. It was um, a brutal situation as well politically because it was at the height of uh, the uh, counterinsurgency program of Petraeus and uh, McChrystal as they attempted to do the right thing, which is protect the populace, uh, you know, all, all of the, the, the structures that we know that are necessary to really pacify an area, but that no political situation has ever got the, 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 the longevity or the will to do. So uh, he entered a situation where the commander of the unit was uh, anti-coin, and wanted to go out and kill bad guys left and right, um, and was uh, losing soldiers left and right. Um, and he entered that scenario, and it was uh, very difficult, I think, uh, because uh, he was entering a, a, a platoon where the, a loved leader was lost. But he promised himself, or at least from the notes that I have, to bring everybody home. And uh, after Danny's death, uh, his sergeant uh, from that, tour uh, had called us and said that, you know, it's normal, Mr. Weiss, for uh, me, the master sergeant, to take out the one patrol and then alternate with the uh, with uh, Lieutenant Sir, is how they called him. And, uh, you know, uh, he would never allow it. He would always go. He was always with us, and he was always on point. And uh, that kind of summed up the Danny that I was coming to know, that... Uh, he needed to be there because he wanted to bring everybody home, and he felt that he was the one who could do it. And he made sure that all of those guys from the 117, after he got there, got home, and they did. Um, and in fact, they remain some of the most uh, incredible uh, sources of support for me and my family right now because of uh, of their love for him. So he got back from that deployment and uh, then uh, was honored with... Uh, uh, and chosen to 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 be assigned uh, to the 75th Ranger Regiment, um, the Spree de Corps of uh, the Ranger Special Forces is just remarkable, and I didn't really appreciate it as much as I do now, knowing so many Rangers in uh, the wake of my son's life. And uh, he uh, he flourished there as well. He uh, he was then on his uh, third deployment with them, with the 75th Rangers, 275, and. Uh, he was, you know, a rifle platoon leader in, in A Company, and uh, he, uh, I think that was part of the transformations. I learned more about the missions of uh, the Rangers uh, and, and his role now as an officer. You know, he wanted to be involved, but a lot of the, uh, of, of, of the missions are not so, you know, some are on video, for God's sakes, and I think that must have driven him crazy, you know, to watch his his platoon going out and he had to be back watching or something like that, or maybe he was tracking. I don't know, but he, he was in an experience where he was watching on screen stuff. And, um, and I think that marked him. That was something that was uh, probably deep 
scars. And uh, then he came home from that deployment, and uh, you know they, they they took some casualties and some deaths on that uh, that deployment as well. And and he was preparing for his uh, fourth deployment uh, when uh, in March of 2012, March fourth uh, Sunday, he he went to lunch with his fellow officers, a brunch there, and. And he gassed up the car for the week, and uh, he bought groceries for the week. And Sunday night, uh, somewhere in the early part of that night, he uh, he, he took out his uh, service revolver, and uh, and he died by suicide. Um, at, at, he was killed by suicide. He was swept away by whatever demons. Uh, but obviously, uh, you know, it's like so many people. Uh, they may be swept away in a moment, but I, 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 I really, uh, you know, I know he didn't want to die. Um, but somehow something overfilled his cup, uh, and, uh, and it brimmed out into such pain that he could only see that. And, uh, that evening, uh, we didn't know. And, uh, it was really funny because my wife and I were uh, working out at the local gym here and, uh, and uh, thinking how blessed we were, how how really fortunate we were that uh, Danny was doing what he wanted to be doing. He was uh, a decorated officer in the 275 Ranger Regiment, and uh, and how uh, lucky we are. And uh, it was the next day, Monday, that uh, we're sitting there in the evening, uh, just poured myself a good whiskey, and and there was a knock on the door with uh, the two uh, military dress blues, and. Uh, Two chaplains presented themselves, and I, I looked through. You know, you can see through uh, the the thing there, and I could see them. And I thought, well, no, that's not possible. He's a he's a base. And then I remember, no, he's a ranger. He could be anywhere. And uh, opened it up, and it was very quickly that uh, they they shared with us that he died by a self inflicted gunshot wound. And uh, I didn't believe it. Uh, I saw my wife fall to the floor um, in a in a in a primal sound that I, 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 I can't even, it, 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 it sends shivers down me right now. Um, I, uh, I stopped breathing. Um, and, uh, and I, I was absolutely convinced that this was absolutely wrong, that they made a mistake, uh, that, uh, that was no possible way that my son would be consumed by suicide. And, uh, and there was a period I thought that the Taliban had sent a hit squad for him because he was such a such an adversary. Yeah. And um, so uh, I slowly learned how to breathe underwater. Um, it was uh, the first uh, night uh, is just uh, devastating, and uh, I I was totally unprepared, and uh, I drove down that first night uh, to get my eldest son. I didn't want him to be, uh, I wanted him to be with us, and I needed to, to, to be the one to tell him, and I, 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 I drove like a madman with one chaplain sitting next to me, bravest chaplain I've ever met, because uh, I wouldn't have let me drive, and uh, I was dialing Danny's phone all the way, uh -huh. pick up Danny, pick up, and uh, picked up my son, my eldest son, and, and we came back home, and uh, the, the, the rest of the days became a real uh, swirl. Um, the 75th Ranger Regiment, because it was in, he was in his apartment off base. The police are involved as well, so there's a little uncertain as to what the time frames were going to be and what's going on and memorials and all of that. Uh, and uh, we had a CAO who uh, who really 
couldn't explain anything. And, uh, and we felt lost. We felt alone. We felt completely devastated and, 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 and stigmatized. And the stigma started with me, uh, about mental health, about suicide, about what our soldiers and, and loved ones go through. And, uh, and the delusional nature of human existence suddenly was shattered for me, at least for a brief moment, so that I had a glimpse into the, 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 the crevice of all time and, I remember saying to myself, I'm not the first. I'm not the first father to have lost his warrior son. And uh, and then came the uh, regiment. His, uh, his fellow platoon leader came and uh, made himself at home. And uh, the respect they showed my son was such that the stigma started breaking down uh, very slowly. And I realized that though our gold star pin looked different because if his suicide had been in theater, it would be the famous purple based. But because of uh, the laws and uh, the fact that human beings are very slow and sometimes not very understanding, we get the one where it could have been a car accident or uh, whatever. But at least nowadays it's recognized, at least. And, and more importantly, his regiment. The, 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 the rangers came and embraced us and, and immediately let us know that he was a hero and that he is a hero. And uh, so we uh, had the memorial. Uh, my eldest son with us, uh, we, we talked and he composed the obituary. And we immediately wanted to acknowledge that it was a death by suicide. We did not want to hide it. Um, we felt very strongly that that was important to alert his uh, brothers in arms. Um, that obviously, if Danny could succumb to this, they were all at risk. Yeah. And uh, that realization was an earth shatterer for me. And we decided as a family that we were going to do something about it immediately. So we put a stupid thing in there acknowledging it and we called the hotline or something like that. Um, and I'm so proud of my son and my wife to uh, to make sure that that's the direction we went. Because so many people in the initial stigmatized moment use euphemisms. And, uh, and that's a disservice. I mean, it's a disservice to us all. We share the fact that we know that there's hell on earth sometimes and we're, that we're all doomed to die. And yet we don't want to talk about death and we don't want to talk about the means of death. And all of that. And we, we, we decided as a family that we're not going to be participants of that. We're going to be as honest and as truthful as possible. And we did. And so we had the memorial. Um, Danny's buried in Arlington, Section 60, uh, with brothers in arms. We know so many people there. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Some who died in combat, some who died in training, some who died by suicide. Um, we've since been... Um, free-falling for a while as we went through the swirl of these events. And I was very fortunate to stumble on a little care package that had come from an organization called TAPS, the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors that had been uh, delivered to us about a week or two after uh, Danny's death. Um, they must have gotten the name from the DOD or somewhere, and uh, however that was released. And in the care package was a little thing because the CAO brought a huge, massive book. And I mean, the la I couldn't even breathe, let alone read. So, uh, that thing became a doorstop. And, uh, and TAPS was the first lifeline that stopped my free fall because I called their 800 number and I said, uh, 
I'm, I, I, I don't know what to do. I'm falling. And uh, a voice on the phone said, this, I, we'll get right back to you. And I got a phone call from uh, uh, Kim Rocco of TAPS, who is the head of the postvention uh, suicide survivors. And uh, we talked. And she said, well, listen, I'm going to have somebody call your son and your wife. And... Uh, and that was where I at least had a thread, and I was swinging in the air and no longer just flying down to I don't know what. And uh, and then slowly things started, I, I started recognizing I was not the first and alone. TAPS had the National Survivor, National Military Survivors of Suicide Seminar occurring that October. So we knew it was happening, and we looked only to that, and, and we got ourselves there to San Diego where it was happening that year. And, Ironically, it was at a place that used to be called Vacation Village where Danny and his older brother and my wife and I and his grandparents had, had ridden around when they were kids. And now we're back at this place and we walk into this room and there's 600 other souls that had survived a suicide loss. And it was overwhelming. What was and, the name of that uh, seminar? It's the TAPS. You know the organization? Yeah, TAPS. I'm aware of TAPS, yeah. TAPS has a uh, been... TAPS has been the most inclusive organization I've ever encountered. Um, how your loved one dies is not important to them. Right. And they've seized that bull by the horns and have created a postvention unit, post-suicide, uh, and I'm, I probably I'm screwing the words up, but the postvention suicide section to look after that extra layer of suicide deaths. Um, because in the end, death is death and grief is grief. And uh, now I really can't remember who died by what means, to be honest with you. Right. But, uh, but that layer at the time is really brutal. And they have a national, a military national suicide seminar and good grief camp for survivors of military suicides. And, uh, it was the, I think it was the fourth one, um, when we first attended, um, and I, as I say, we walked into this incredibly large banquet room there at this place in San Diego, this Paradise Cove um, that had generously, I guess, worked with TAPS to give us a place to be. And uh, there were 600-plus other, other family members and who had survived suicides. And uh, all of different stripes, because some were suicides of people who had never served or had never uh, been deployed. And some were suicides uh, by disastrous means, by, uh, you know, there's so many ways you can die. And, uh, and it was stunning because I had learned now to breathe underwater, to, to put one foot ahead. And people thought I was still standing upright when, in fact, it was only prosthetics and uh, my heart was totally removed from my chest. But here were people who were just like me who were talking and sharing and learning about grief practices, and it was unbelievable. And it was at that point that I realized that uh, that life's not over yet and that I have a mission. And if my son uh, chose to serve at 17 years of age, um, I was kind of drafted in his wake and that I needed to serve now too. And uh, it became very clear that there were two avenues. One is in terms of mental health and suicide prevention because of the epidemic. Um, and the other is, is survivors of suicide because the complex grief 
is sometimes more profound with survivors of suicide. Um, and I thought, well, these are ways I can serve. And TAPS offered me a platform so that uh, my wife and I were able to become what they call the peer-to-peer -peer mentor program. Um, and we were trained to essentially listen better. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we uh, decided that we needed to help our, our son's brothers in arms and uh, became uh, certified by the ASSIST Applied Suicide Intervention Techniques uh, organization that uh, um, teaches uh, how to listen correctly and see those invitations of, of people who are depressed or suffering uh, thoughts of suicide and how to reach out to them and help them find links to life and life-affirming things and how to help them identify an action plan when they feel that depression and, and training ourselves finally, too late for Danny, but finally being trained properly. Um, it's just uh, remarkable to me that, that we were not better prepared, but I share in that burden and that blame, and uh, I wasn't going to let it happen to any of Danny's brothers in arms. So, so then we... Uh, yeah, go ahead. I'll say, so now that you've been, now that you've received some of this training and you feel more prepared, in hindsight, is there anything that you picked up on in Danny's behavior or were you still separated enough where you know, you you may not have been, had an opportunity to intervene anyways? Well, that's a very complex question, but a great one because um, obviously there's no time machine, so that one's useless. And, yeah. Uh, it's easy to slide down the what ifs and... Uh, and then you suffer uh, from the guilt, and and then you you stop focusing on on life. And uh, as I, I I I look back though now, and I've 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 read much more, and I've experienced other stories much more, including on your podcast. And uh, through the help of of good friends, uh, met through Taps and other organizations, uh, and reading Thomas Joyner about why people die by suicide and seeing that it is uh, great and wonderful, but it doesn't offer a template for every human being. Danny did not exhibit any of the signs that were apparent signs uh, that would have caused an intervention. Um, he didn't have a drug problem. He didn't have financial problems. He didn't have a relationship problem. Um, so all those things, when the Ranger Regiment came to give their their report to us, their investigation report, I can't remember the damn acronyms being a non-military guy myself, hmm. but uh, the, they were, we were invaded by the 75th uh, Ranger Regiment um, and the psychologist of the unit basically told us that uh, Denny is the quintessential candidate of who we want in the Ranger Regiment. He was the perfect Ranger. He, uh, he was it. And so obviously he was so incredible that he could fight his demons and fake everybody out because obviously um, people who are contemplating suicide are in a, such a dark place um, it seems that um, when they interact with other people they are, are used to participating in the world so the mask comes up and, and things come up and, and they, they protect themselves just like we all do we walk around pretending to be things that we're not yeah. and uh so obviously there's more complicated and he may be worried about his job and his MOS would change and he would not be promotable or, or whatever. Um, and when in hindsight, we've seen some efforts of him to reach out when he was in Fort Benning at OCS. He did see a counselor and share some things. And 
And with me, in retrospect, he spoke of things, um, dark things, um, where I know that we talked about suicide and that uh, he made me and persuaded me enough to think that it was not a risk for him, but then I wasn't as well prepared to recognize the signs of it. Um, and now, in retrospect, yeah, I do see signs because he had isolated himself. He was uh, work, 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 and then back to his apartment where he would read about tactics against the Taliban and, and, and terrorism, hmm. uh, where he'd read counterinsurgency, where he'd read and try to teach himself Pashtun and Dari, and where he would put, you know, it was constantly the mission. And uh, so, in retrospect, that was another drip in the cup. And then uh, we know that he, uh, when he, early on, I mentioned to you the death of his good friend whose uh, KIA bracelet that Danny wore I wear now every day so that specialist Matt Sayert's name is never not said aloud. Um, I know that when he got back from the 173rd, he trained his replacement, which is pretty common. Um, the saw gunner of his unit, he trained the next one, and uh, and that, that lad got killed uh, almost uh, immediately in their deployment when uh, that unit replaced Danny's, and, uh, when, or when the 173rd went back. And Danny wasn't there. And uh, I think that he must have felt like I felt when Danny died, my son died. I think he felt his son died. And that pain must have been one of the big drops. But I didn't know. And I didn't know the... The, the emotional burden, because we t teach our soldiers to be such physical specimens when we're doing it right, but we don't take the time to teach them the mental health aspects of being mentally healthy as well as physically healthy. Yeah. And my son was challenged with that, and uh, he was a physical specimen, and he continued to treat his body like a shrine, but somehow that uh, other aspect he was unable to... Uh, to protect. And uh, the flip side of it is, as I learn more, that that pain must have been so incredible, and yet my son achieved at such high levels, uh, becoming ranger tabbed, leading his men home, doing all these things while he was suffering so deeply. And we don't know if it was a TBI incident, because he was in a, when he was in his first deployment, he was in an IED. His, his medic described how the vehicle was overturned, and he and he had felt the his boots melting, and they jumped out of the vehicle and returned fire, and, and how that's when he fell in love with my son. But that clearly they, there was risk there. That Who knows, you know. Uh, so we'll never know why. Sure. We'll never know if there was any one issue. If moral injury isn't another aspect, there's another concept that I'm learning about that I didn't know. Um, and as I read historically, uh, Jonathan Shea's Achilles in Vietnam and stuff like this, I... I see Danny in, in many of the instances when he was with the 117 trying to protect the populace, and he has a commander who's saying, let's go kill everybody, um, you know, don't trust any of them. Um, you know, those kind of things cause a lot of conflict and become another drop in that overfilled bucket of your life. And once it reaches a point of saturation, it seems that, those of us who are the finest of us, meaning those who serve us in the military, who put themselves at such risk and then become so accustomed to death and violence, they're at greater risk because they're used to violence. So it becomes an, an option, a viable option. Yeah. And, uh, so Danny 
Danny succumbed to his ins- his his injury, which uh, I, I've heard called invisible injuries. I just think we we got to look harder, and uh, and it's just like a cancer of the brain. It was a cancer of the heart, and uh, and it consumed my son, and he uh, he is no longer here. But he's with me and teaching me every day, and that's part of the paradox that I just can't quite get my head around. It's uh, remarkable. So, you know, between his death and now, you know, you mentioned that you fell victim to a lot of the stigma that surrounds suicide early on, and that you've been um, you've been learning otherwise through this training and preparation. What are what are one or two um, strong stigmas that you felt early on that have been completely debunked in what you've learned about suicide? Well, the most obvious to me and, uh, is, is, is the language of it. Uh, that My son committed suicide is how people presented it to me, and I reject that entirely now. I, I did accept that in the beginning. I thought that that was a, a, a proper term, but it is not. You don't commit cancer. You don't commit a heart attack. You, you, you don't commit suicide. You die by it, and it can kill you. But, uh, so that stigma was one of the first things that I, I recognized was, was false. Um, the other was, it's part of the, uh, you know, um, mental health is something that we just don't like to talk about any more than we like to talk about death. Yeah. And it was, uh, pretty clear that, uh, my son's mental health was, uh, deteriorating to a degree that, um, should have been talked about and should be embraced just like the physical wound of an IED blowing off limbs. It's no different. Um, and then there's the, the people around you, uh, friends and families, uh, who, 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 who bring the stigma to you in their shape and forms. And you either have to educate them or tolerate them or ignore them. And, um, all of these things conspired to keep pushing me towards a broader, more compassionate view of what human beings are, which are emotional creatures. I remember reading a thing uh, shortly after Danny died that uh, at some point or another, 25% of Americans need mental health care. And I laughed because I thought that's bullshit. It's all of us, 100% of us, need counseling or some kind of mental health care at some point in our lives, be it at the death of a dog be it at a trauma of an auto accident where, you know, you see, witness something, or you or were in it. Yeah. The, the, the concept of post-traumatic stress is not limited to the military. And uh, the third thing, the last thing I would say is that there's a real stigma in general about people who are not in the military and their view of the military, both of only uh, those people who really had no uh, other options joined the military, which is such bullshit it's incredible to me <laughs> and then so and then, wrong so. i mean it is just the exact opposite the best of us present themselves and the other is that these veterans who war veterans who come back they're all damaged and all suffer pts that is the most piece of bull and, and they think of rambo or something like yeah um well it's that the part of that is it it's not entirely their fault because you know may uh mainstream media only covers the um, the shootings at Fort Bragg and stuff like that, and um, and they label these these soldiers as like PTSD monsters that just want to eat your children because they've came come back from a deployment. 
And, you know, if they don't have exposure to other people that have come back from um, a combat zone, that's sort of the only uh, only thing they get to learn about. And, of course, because of, you know, how ratings works, they, you know, Fox and CNN and the rest of them just, um, they harp on the PTSD, they harp on the combat veteran, and they list everything that could possibly be wrong with this individual and making people believe that that's just what happens when you come back from a combat zone. Yeah, you know, and I'm as guilty as the next guy because, as I say, I had the stigma first. And uh, and the, the, But there's no excuse. The Army, it would have been helpful had they given me a little bit better training as a family member. On the other hand, I have to share and shoulder that same burden that I could have done a better job of educating myself. So if we listen only to mainstream media to compartmentalize our news into 20-minute segments of, uh, you know, uh, all this nonsense, then shame on us. Yeah, because absolutely. clearly... Clearly, it's more profound and complex than that. And we, emotional human beings that we are, are complex organisms that uh, are still pretty much in the dark ages in so many ways. And uh, we've learned everything from our predecessors who knew as little as we did. Yeah. And so we learn by putting bricks on bricks, and, and some of the bricks are, are corroding and are wrong. And uh, suicide is, is one. I mean, the, 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 the 22 veterans a day number is so mind-boggling, so horrific, and yet the CDC doesn't enter in and cause, call this out as a, you know, red flag epidemic. Yeah. It, 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 it's, there's something else going on, and that's, that's the stigma part that I, I personally just have to take on head on and, and to the consternation of a lot of my friends and family, because, it's uncomfortable for a lot of people. I mean, all of us grieve differently and all of us interrelate differently. Um, but if I'm sitting there and having a conversation with somebody and it happens to turn to, well, how many children do you have? Well, I have, I have two sons. And, uh, oh, what do they do? And ultimately, I have to say, well, one is dead. Yeah. And then they want to say, well, what happened? And, you know, and you, you have to decide at that moment what you're going to do. You can educate, tolerate, or ignore. I had the good fortune of having my son serve our country, so TAPS was afforded to me, and they reached out to me, and I saw them, and I reached out to them, and they taught me their mantra is you remember the love, you celebrate their life, and we'll share this journey that remains. And that's absolutely true. My love for my son did not die with him. It, it grows, and my, um, my learning from him, which he exponentially increased while he was alive, teaching me about things that I just didn't know existed, he continues to do even in his death. So, the, the, again, there's a paradox at play, but no, 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 I celebrate my son's life, and uh, and I wish he was still here. I would do anything to be delusional and ignorant again, but uh, that's not the way it is. That's not how this planet works, and I don't know about the other side. I love S-Y-O-T-S, but... I don't know. I do know that I don't know, and I know that I love him. So those are the only facts that I know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go, Tim, but uh, each of us. I'm really... You're, do, you're doing the best because you're, you're, you're tip of the spear with the uh, your program and your efforts. It's uh, easy to slip into, you know, commercial stuff, and people do want the distraction and the ease, but... There is a tremendous risk, and, and, and people who are contemplating suicide have to 
know that they're not alone, and it's very difficult. But when they can listen to some of the people who participate in your podcast, or they hear me, a survivor of a loved one's suicide, maybe, just maybe, they'll have the strength to fight through one more time and get some help and put in a plan. Um, it's a, it's an uphill climb, but boy, I've got the boots on. Let's go get them and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. I love that. I really appreciate your, uh, your the, the kind words and the support. And, you know, it's, it's what's funny, I guess not funny, but what's interesting is, um, you know, one thing that the veteran community has fallen um, victim to is they've, you know, there's the, you know, where's the help, where's the assistance, stuff like that. And I think sometimes we forget there's actually more available for us in the military community than in other communities. Um, you know, like you said, you had, you know, TAPS, they're ready to reach out to you and, and to yeah. guide you along to what it, what it, what it means to be a survivor and how to, uh, cope with that, how to embrace it. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate that men, you know, people outside the military community may not have those resources and yeah. they're forced to cope with it on their own. And if they don't have anybody in the military community is extremely blessed to have people like you who are willing to reach out to, to new survivors and immediately, um, be that mentor and be that, um, uh, be that ear to listen. Whereas, you know, the, you know, the mother in, um, in the other part of Chicago that doesn't have, um, yeah. these networks and her, her son dies either by his own hand or someone else's hand that may not have a network to reach out there. And then she's sitting there tormented, you know, in her own mind with no outlet. So, yeah, um, it's, it's a struggle. And, and part of that problem is, is that there's so many, so many good intentions. And this is part that's hard for people to understand. It's not that there's a lack of things and lack of compassion. It's that there's so many and that they're all so separated and the, the noise level is, is humongous. And it's the outreach. It's like the vet center. They've done a good job, uh, trying to put these smaller satellite vet centers in communities to reach out. But as I keep telling all my friends at the vet center, the real struggle is the outreach because the guy's not coming in to the center. He has to be reached to come into the center and yeah. you have to go out to them. And that, that's a real struggle. And in the general community, well, again, the military is leading the way in a lot of ways with mental health. Um, the stigma is less in the military for suicide than it is outside. It still exists, don't get me wrong, but it's changing faster because of the, the calamity and the disaster that it confronts. And so many of our, of your friends know people and, or themselves have had dark thoughts. So for them, it's not so difficult. But my friends outside in the general community, I would be wrong not to say that there wasn't help there for us as well. There was a group survivors outreach services, um, and there's suicide prevention services and survivors of suicide and grief uh, network and all of these things that, that do offer. But the noise becomes so loud that the, the, the person at risk or the family who survived the disaster, they're not really well equipped to hear it. And, uh, and, and so somehow the balance is, is shared. But anyone who's waiting for help to come riding on a white horse is reading too many Marvel comics. It's just not that way. And I have to share the blame that I was not more proactive and educated before. Yeah. But that's part of the problem of anybody's life. You, you, you have these years and you spend a lot of them chasing after girls or, or, or chasing <laughs> after money or chasing after something. And in fact, you need to look inside first and, and take a look. 
and say, who am I? And where am I going and what do I want to be? And center yourself in a moment where you're actually seeing a reality around you. And then when it's confronting you, you have a better chance of responding to the real deal of, of that person at risk or yourself at risk and have a plan then. I'm going to call this fellow who's my peer. He's my brother in arms. I'm going to tell him I'm having a bad day today and uh, I need help. And that guy is going to come and he's going to sit on you and make sure that you get through that night. And then we move forward and everybody has to do it together. We're, we're going to travel together. Or we're not going to make it at all. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, and I've, you know, you've probably read or listened to in some of the momentary reflections I've put out is, one of the things that really helped me, that really helped me get from um, a struggle of mental health to um, a more confident grasp on my mental health is is pursuing peace over anything else. And uh, it's it, you know, and it goes into that you know, I don't pursue happiness, I don't pursue money or you know the rest of it. Um, the first thing that I try to discover is peace, and being able to find that has really helped me. Um, yeah, you know, and Tim, I got to stop you because it's you, you say a simple word like peace, and we're limited to this one-dimensional, at best two-dimensional letters making a word that means so many different things in people's heads. Sure. And the, 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 I think that, that I'm hearing you talking about a peace that's a, a tranquil place that you, you you calm your thoughts that just. You know, now it's become very popular mindfulness and, and, and that kind of training and, and, and bring it on. I mean, it's fantastic because that's exactly what we need in order to, when I was free falling, my thought process was so, so distorted. Um, I couldn't find that moment of peace. I couldn't take a breath. I literally couldn't breathe. Subsequently, learning how to pace my breath, physically pace my breath, allowed me to slow my thoughts down enough that I could find moments of peace and learn to breathe underwater. It's amazing, I isn't mean, it? Yeah, it's amazing. And that's part of the holistic training of the physical, mental health that we as a, as a society, as a, as a people, n- need to, to, to focus on from very early on. When I see young kids... And their parents, uh, now we're having conversations about corporal punishment and this and that. And when the kid is so wired that something's going on, well, he's lacking peace. He doesn't need to be struck. He needs to somehow be taught to center his thoughts that he's not thinking about, I gotta have that candy bar, I gotta have that candy bar. Yeah. You know, and it's a, it's a practice. And practice implies work that continues constantly. So it's beautiful to hear you say that because it is the grounding thing. I mean, all we look for, at least me, at this point in my life, is to find a balance, to recognize that I'm a part of seven plus billion people on a planet, of which 115 billion have ever lived, they estimate, and who knows who's coming after us, and I'm just a participant. Yeah. And what does it mean? I don't know. I know that it means I have to start breathing, and I have to center myself and the moment of a conversation like I'm having with you right now and be as honest as possible so that we can really touch each other, learn from each other, and find a measure of peace. It's 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 tough and easy all at once. Absolutely. Uh so each show and I've been doing this on my you know, in my own um post interview comments, but clearly, you know, you you're well networked in, you know, with the um with taps and gold star and whatnot. 
a res I always try to like exercise a resource or communicate a resource to the listeners that they can um whether they're whether they're someone struggling with suicide or they know someone or if they're just if they want to be involved. Um you know you mentioned taps. Maybe what's one other resource you've discovered that's really uh you know we'll focus on survivors here that's really important for survivors to be aware of. Well, I tell you, um, there's a number of things. Uh, if, if it's a military disaster of any kind where you've lost a loved one, then TAPS is the organization that I would suggest. Obviously, there's others. Um, there's the Widow Project. There's, uh, you know, um, Survivor Outreach Services tries to put things together and, and a lot of good intentions. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, I believe. <laughs> there's, uh, there's other groups like Friends for Survival, um, Compassionate Friends, and these kind of things. I mean, for survivors of suicide, there, there, there are options out there. I, uh, I, I put out a spreadsheet because I was so overwhelmed with all of the different things and, uh, different sources of help that I, I started listing it in my anal way, uh, on a spreadsheet. And I, I put out the spreadsheet for, you know, on a Google spreadsheet for anybody to, to look. It's called, Public sources of support for military and other survivors of suicide. And, uh, so that, that TAPS is definitely the go-to, but there are others. Um, and in your community is the key thing because you want to have something around you. That's why with TAPS, um, the outreach is to start these care groups in local communities as well because though there's, you know, the national seminar or something, um, what do you do on a regular basis? And so we've started a, a TAPS care group here for survivors of military disasters um, in Chicagoland, and I know other friends of mine who are doing it throughout with TAPS help. Now, for veterans, it's another story. There's so many uh, resources, you know, from Team Rubicon to, uh, you know, uh, the, the vets, uh, the Veterans Administration with the Veterans Crisis Net, um, you know, Vets for Warriors, uh, Make the Connection. It's just incredible how much wealth of, of people who are trying so hard. Um, I, I can't offer which is best because it's like therapy. Yeah. You, you have to, you have to do a dance to find what's comfortable for you. And, uh, some people like, uh, you know, uh, dogs and, uh, you know, pet therapy and some people like jumping out of airplanes and, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I've done both. And I have to tell you, for me, it's, it's, it's more. I like more, but, uh, the real thing is ultimately is compassion. Um, it's the, 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 I don't mean to be trite about it, but when you give someone a hug who's suffering, you get one in return. It's a two-way thing. Yeah. It's not just a giving, it's a receiving. And so that's what it's about. When you give love, you get love. And, uh, you know, it's peace. It's finding that peace, that moment of peace. And you can only do it with somebody who you can trust and feel has come from a similar type of disaster is you so. absolutely andy it's i i know i know everybody listening is is extremely moved by by your story and your just just your honesty about what uh what your family was going through what what you were going through and just the continuous love that you provide your son even uh well after his death it's 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 really admirable and um i know it's it's not um you know I'm sure you've talked about this with enough people to where it's getting easier, but it's still never easy. Um, well, it, I heard one of your uh, interviewees uh, say something to the effect that really struck me is that if it just becomes words and I don't feel emotionally drained after this, 
uh, then I'm, I've, I've, I've lost a thread and I don't think I risk it because, uh, every time I'm looking at the face of my son right now in a picture and, uh, every time the pain comes back, I mean, they're, they're, they're like the swelling of the seas. Sometimes they're calm and sometimes they're rough as hell. And I expect them to be rough as hell sometimes. And talking to you is a great way to honor him. And I appreciate the platform, but, uh, no, it doesn't get easier. It, uh, it is an honor though. And, uh, he, he honored us in his short years and I, uh, I, I try to do my best to, to, to return it. And, uh, all of those out there who are listening, who are service members, I want to thank you for volunteering so that others didn't have to. If you are at any risk at all, if you have moments that are dark, you make sure to reach out. You start with the veterans crisis line. You start with a good buddy, but start somewhere. And if you know that you've had these thoughts before, get your action plan together. Know what you're going to do when it happens. Know you're going to call and reach out to and be ready for it because it comes and goes like the seas as well. But love out to y'all and I appreciate your efforts very much.